Genesis 1.1, starting there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came, and then morning the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed bearing plants, according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs, or signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the fourth day. We'll skip down to chapter two, starting in verse one. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. For on it, he rested from all his work of creation. This is God's word. Well, we are in the second week in a series on Genesis 1 called In the Beginning. And last week, we looked at the first verse in the Bible, in the first verse in Genesis 1, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is a summary statement for everything that's going to be happening in these a little over a chapter that we're going to be looking at. And I summarized it like this, that way back when, or back in the day when God started, God, this person is there. And it's our God, and he created everything. Now, why did he create everything? That's where we ended last week. He created it to fill the space with his presence. That's what he wants to do, is to come and dwell with us. And that's why this picture uh, is, our, is our picture for uh, this series. God is creating a temple, a place where God and humans can dwell together in the desert, in the wild and the waste. So before we go looking into the specific details of Genesis 1, we need to do a bit of ground clearing so we can clearly see what this passage is saying to us. And that's what we're going to do in the next three weeks, because Genesis 1, although it's very important to the Bible, is also a passage that's quite controversial. It's been understood and interpreted in many different ways throughout history. And so we need to go into a couple weeks of, of unearthing you know, what it is. What is it, this passage that we're looking at? And that's where I want to start this morning. And so the first thing that I want us to see is that Genesis 1 is an act of communication. That's may seem very basic, but it's important to where we're going. So what is communication? Communication is a message that's designed to go from one group of people to another group of people. So there's three parts. There's one group of people, a communicator, the message, and then a receiver. 
Uh, near a, uh, ancient Near Eastern scholar John Walton says, effective communication requires a body of agreed upon words, terms, and ideas, a common ground of understanding. So that's that might be too wide of an angle. So let me give it a specific example of how communication works. I'm going to put up a question on the screen, and you can feel free to type in if you want. I want you to give me your answer to this question. It's an act of communication, and I want you to answer it. So go ahead. So many of you, some of you might be able to answer it. Many of you may not if you can't read Chinese. So let me, let me, um, you can't use Google Translate. Come on, Peter, Deb, that's cheating. Um, so let me, let me, uh, let me say it for you. Nitrilamel, that's what it says. Nitrilamel. So what's your response now? Some of you might have a response because you know uh, you some some people, especially if you're a CBC, you may have uh, been born in Canada. You can't read Chinese, but you can understand. So you may have understood those words in my very broken Chinese. For those of you who don't read or speak Chinese, let me give you the tr direct translations of what these words would be. You ate, not have. You ate, not have. So what's your response now? Well, those words, even though they're all English words, they don't make a lot of sense in English. So let me give you a more, a proper translation. Have you eaten? That's what these, this, this question means translated over into English. So have you eaten? What would you answer to that question? So the, here's the thing. In Mandarin, if someone asks you this question, it doesn't actually mean have you eaten? They're actually asking you, yeah, how, how are you doing? Someone answered in French. That was, that was clever. Um, they're actually asking you, how are you doing? And there's more layers to this communication, even though the direct meaning of it is, have you eaten? They're asking you, how are you doing? And if you are, uh, you don't generally don't just go and ask random people, how, how have you eaten? But you use this in friendships where you're close to one another where you're concerned about that person's well-being. I spent a year in China, and, and so I could tell you many stories of this, about learning how to do very ineffective communication and learning that you not only need to understand the words and what they mean, a direct translation, but you need to share a context. And in this situation, you need to share a relationship in order to be able to communicate well. So this is a good example of what we need when we come to the Bible, especially in Genesis 1. Because Genesis 1 is an act of communication. And beyond being an act of communication just between two people from different languages, it's an ancient act of communication. So the Bible is not only written in another language and another context, but it's written in another time. So it's not a modern text, and it doesn't share many of the modern assumptions that we have about the world. John Walton, again, he continues, so effective communication requires a body of agreed upon words, terms, and ideas, a common ground of understanding. He continues on, for the speaker, for the speaker, this often requires accommodation to the audience by using words and ideas that they will understand. For the audience, if they are not native to the language and the cultural matrix of the speaker, this means reaching common ground may require seeking out additional information or explanation. That's what I tried to do with you with that Chinese sentence on the screen. 
In other words, the audience has to adapt and find or adapt to a new and unfamiliar culture. The audience has to adapt to a new and unfamiliar culture. So what Walton is saying here is that to understand an ancient act of communication like the Bible, it's going to take some work because we are not because the Bible is wrong, but because we aren't 2,500 year old Jewish people. And I've said this many times before that the Bible is written for us. It is God's word for us, but it's not written to us. That initial act of communication was from the author to the people at the time. Yet we often treat the Bible like it's written to us directly. We come with our modern assumptions and our questions and we ask them to the test or text, sorry. And so it would be like a Chinese person hopping off the plane at YBR, coming downtown and asking you, and you might say, there's no churros here. I don't know what you're talking about, but this is how we treat the Bible. Um, or it'd be like us going back in time and asking our great, great grandparents, you know, how's the crypto doing in your wealth simple account? Did you get up on Ethereum early enough? They just couldn't make sense. Even if they could understand what we're talking about, they couldn't make sense because they don't share the context of our modern world. And so here's a sentence that I find very helpful as I uh, read the Bible. And it's something you can put in your pocket. Reading the Bible is like taking a flight in a time machine. Reading the Bible is like taking a flight in a time machine. You're going to another place and another time. And so we need to be prepared, as John Walton says, to adapt to a new and unfamiliar culture. Now, I get that this can be really, really frustrating to people. We're used to going to the Bible as you know, Protestant Christians to get our verse for today and assuming that I should just be able to open my Bible and read it and God will meet me and speak to me through that. And there's truth to that. I don't want to say that. Uh, that there isn't. But we also tend to minimize the reality that we're part of an ancient faith. That when God decided to come as a human being, he saw it fit not to come in 2021, but 2000 years ago as a Jewish man. When he gave us these creation narratives, he didn't do it uh, with, you know, 21st century assumptions with science, but he did it thousands and thousands of years ago. And so we enter into a long story of Jewish history, and by his grace, the story is being extended to us. The gospel is still good news. And the spirit that was hovering over the waters in Genesis 1, and that came on Jesus in his baptism, as we saw in the gospel of Mark, and that raised Jesus from the dead, that same spirit dwells in us today. But it's an ancient story. And so it's rife for misunderstanding when we ask it our modern questions. It doesn't mean that our modern questions are bad. They're very, very good, and they might be very relevant to our lives. Like, you know, like, should I invest in Ethereum? If anyone knows the answer to this question, I'm actually very interested right now to know. Um, but that's a great question to ask, but the Bible doesn't give answers to that. So the Bible can be frustrating, but it's also an invitation to an adventure and to a mystery and an invitation to learn and come to meet this God and this Jesus and, and an amazing hope that the God who has acted in history, if we can learn to understand what he's done in that context, and a God who has saved his people and all these beautiful stories that are written, that that God is still alive and he's trying to speak to us today and he's working through his church. So Genesis 1 is an ancient act of communication. It's communicating about our God to an ancient audience. So we need to think about reading the Bible like taking a flight in a time machine. 
So back to Genesis 1, how does Genesis 1 actually do this? How does it speak the truth about who God is into the context? Here's William Brown, um, an expert in the area. He says, the framers of creation in the Bible inherited a treasure trove of venerable traditions from their cultural neighbors. Instead of creating their counts next ex nihilo, the composers of scripture developed their traditions in dialogue with some of the greatest religious traditions in the surrounding cultures. So another way of saying what he's saying is that Genesis 1 is a creation story that is in conversation with other ancient creation stories. That's who the audience is. The cultures around Israel, like the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians and the Babylonians, they all had their own creation narratives. And so the divinely inspired authors of Genesis 1 wrote in dialogue with those stories. They're in conversation with one another. Let me try to explain this a, a different way. Last week, we watched a video from one of my favorite children's authors, Mo Willems. He had this book, Goldilocks and the Three Dinosaurs. So if you listened last week, or if you've ever read that book, the question is, why is it funny? Why is Goldilocks and the Three Dinosaurs funny? It's because it's responding to a previous story that you already know, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. If you notice at the bottom here, it says that the story is retold by Mo Willems. So Mo Willems, throughout the whole book, he's winking at this other story, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. You know, one of the parts is like, it keeps winking, like these bowls are massive. This girl could never eat them all. Or the chairs are just way too big for dinosaurs. She would never sit in them. And so throughout the story, he's, he's assuming that you know that this other story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears exists. And that's what makes it really funny. Now, imagine if you had never heard the children's story, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And some of you may be in that boat and therefore you didn't find it funny. But the question is, would Goldilocks and the three dinosaurs still be as funny or make, us, make sense? Well, maybe, you know, you could laugh at the Norwegian dinosaur that's in there that talks, you know, kind of like the chef from the Muppets. Um, but you're also just as likely to walk away from reading the book and say, like, that book wasn't funny at all. I, I, don't, I don't understand why people find it funny. It's because the humor in Goldilocks and the Three Dinosaurs is most fully appreciated when you share its context. That's what Mo Willems is betting on. And then if you share the context, if you understand really well all the tropes and the storylines from Goldilocks and the Three Bears, then it becomes a very clever and comical story. One that's not only funny for kids, but funny for adults. And that's one of the reasons why I had us watch it last week. Because Genesis 1 is doing the same thing. Every culture surrounding ancient Israel, like I said, they had their own creation narrative that was well known, kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Most Canadian people would know that story. And so the stories of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and creation psalms like Psalm 8 and Psalm 90, they're all responding to stories in the surrounding cultures. They enter into the stories of their world and they adapt or they change or they reject them in order to show who the God of the Bible is, how he's unique and how he's worthy of worship over all the other gods. So this morning, as, uh, as we look closer at the text, that's what we're going to do. We're going to take look at two other creation narratives that were happening in the time of Genesis 1 to see how Genesis 1 accomplishes this communication and what it says to us about our God today. So the first is we're going to look at Egyptian cosmology. Egyptian cosmology. Now, there are many different Egyptian cosmology stories. 
And generally, they start with the same thing. They have the darkness and the chaotic waters, which are represented by this goddess. Her name is Nu. And so already you might be hearing these are some similar themes that we see in Genesis 1, darkness and chaotic waters. So from Nu, from this goddess, uh, a hill that looks like a pyramid emerged, and this is called a benben. Many scholars think that this is because they, they created their stories from watching the Nile River. The Nile River would flood every year, so it would come over the land, representing the chaos waters. And then when the flooding would stop, the water would go back, but the ground would be very fertile for new life to emerge. So they created the story, the creation story out of that. So out of the Benben and out of the darkness, various gods arose. Now, every city put forward their own local god in Egyptian uh, cosmology as the main creator. Let me give you a couple examples. There's many different stories. In a city called Hermopolis, there were eight gods or four couples. It's kind of like a very old sitcom. And uh, these four couples all procreate together to uh, make the rest of the gods and the rest of the world. The, the, a lot of these stories are quite uh, sexual in nature, I have to say, after reading some of them this week. Let, let's talk, uh, that's Hermopolis. In Heliopolis, there was one main god called Atum. So not lots of gods, but one main god. And, and if you read about Egyptian cosmology, people will generally say this is the main god, Atum. And he thought himself into existence, or he involved some people will say, in, into existence from the chaos waters. Now, a tomb is neither male nor female, and he has this all-seeing eye. If you've ever seen a picture of hieroglyphics with the seeing eye, it's the eye of a tomb that he sees everywhere, very similar to the story of Lord of the Rings. And a tomb joined with his shadow in order to create his son. That's how he made more gods. And then he puked out his daughter and kind of like this this bodily excretions as he makes more and more gods in the world. Let's do one more. In Memphis, another city, there is this god, the creator god Ptah, who was the patron god of craftsmen's. And like craftsmen's, he envisions a final project product in his mind, in his heart, actually, I should say, sorry. And then he speaks it into existence. Again, resonances with our story. So there's all these different um, cosmologies, these different stories, these creation stories that are going on in ancient Egypt. And the people don't find them a problem that they have many different ones. Rather, they, they put them together and they believe in many gods. And this became their worldview, that, that their whole world was filled with gods. And in fact, their whole world was gods. So this is how they conceived of their world. Sorry, go to the next slide, um, uh, Cam. So this is a picture of how an ancient Near Eastern person would see the world. It's all uh, gods. So you see the, the woman's body that's kind of up and over uh, everything the, with the stars in it. That's Nut. That's the sky. So that's one god. And then holding her up underneath is the air god, Shu. He holds up the sky. Then beneath him is Geb, the earth heart, or the earth god, sorry. And then one of the most important gods in um, Egyptian cosmology is the god Ra. You see him on the left and on the right. He's in a boat. And his job is to take the sun every day over um, Nut and light the sky. And then every night, Ra goes into the underworld and he has to fight a serpent of chaos called Apophis. Again, we see this serpent theme. If you're familiar with the biblical story, you, you can hear some of the resonances there. And so this is what an, a, an Egyptian person at the time of the writing of Genesis 1 would think about the world. Now, how does Genesis 1 compare and contrast to this story? 
In the Egyptian stories, as we've seen, there are many different gods. But in Genesis 1, there's just one God. We just have this statement, in the beginning, God. And we get a sneak peek here at the Trinity in this first part, that God is is there. He is the creator. His spirit is hovering above the waters, and his word is speaking out. This this mystery of the, the Trinity in the Bible. But there's one God only. Now, why does this matter? Well, in ancient Egypt much, and much of the ancient world, you, because you lived in a, a world of many different gods, you would need to ensure that all these gods were taken care of. And it could become exhausting in a place like Egypt because they're always adding more and more gods. And if something bad happened to you, you might think, oh, shoot, it's because I forgot to sacrifice to the moon god. You know, I sacrificed to the sun god, uh, to the earth god. I observed the festival from the god of fertility, but I forgot to say a prayer to the moon god, and so I can't sleep. You have to appease all of the gods in this world so that your world would, would continue to work and that you could be safe and protected. And you always had to keep your eye out that there might be other gods who might appear on the scene and change things. And so that creates a, a, a situation of anxiety. And it's into that story that the Genesis narrative reminds God's people that there is only one God who rules over everything. You know, a new God is not going to pop up that you're going to need to appease. The gods of the other nations are not stronger than your God. You can rest in the simplicity of the God of Israel. Now, in our world today, we don't think like this at all. We don't assume that if you can't sleep, you need to go to a temple and sacrifice to the moon god. You go to a sleep therapist and you probably get some blue light glasses and you vow not to drink coffee after 3 p.m. But about 10 years ago, a novel came out that challenged this way of thinking. The novel was called American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Now, he is not a Christian, and uh, the the TV show is very, very graphic, so I don't recommend it, or at least I'm throwing out a provincial advisory warning if you're going to check it out. But in this, it was a book, and in the book, he pictures the world as a battle between two sets of gods. The The gods of the old world, which are similar to the gods that we read about, Ra and Newt. And uh, the Greek gods or the Roman gods, and also the gods of the new world that he calls American gods. And this is what author, the author says about the new gods. He says, the modern gods right now are the things that we give our attention to, the things we give our time to, because time is precious. Time is what we use to worship. So we should be wary of technology. We should be wary of our phones because we give them time, our time, our attention, our love. We should be wary of the media. We give the media our time. We give it our attention. And so the new gods that he describes in the book, they're going to battle with these old gods. They're they're here. And from left to right, technical boy, this is the god of technology. Media, this is the goddess of social media and TV and news. And Mr. World, the leader of all the gods and the personification of globalization in the book. And so in the book, the problem is that the old gods have all been eclipsed by the new gods. All of the gods get their power from worship, from our attention. But the old gods almost have no attention anymore. And so they have very little power. And the new gods in the book have all of the power because everybody is giving their time and energy and attention to them. But the new gods also have a problem. They have to keep upgrading and reincarnating themselves to stay relevant and survive in the world. Because the moment that they become irrelevant, the moment that they can't sustain people's attention, they become Blackberry. They're forgotten and no longer worshipped and they lose all of their power. How does that affect those of us who live in this world and worship new gods? 
Well, we end up actually living in a world that's not that different from ancient Egyptians, a world where new gods may emerge at any time. And we can feel this fear of being left behind and anxious that we're not keeping up with the speed of change of gods and that our worship will become obsolete. You know, we're still back on MySpace and the world is using TikTok. And it's a world of anxiety and speed because we must continually point and repoint our worship to ever-changing gods. This is our world. And it's into this world, a world of many gods, whether they be old or new, a world of anxiety and constant change that Genesis 1 is designed to speak. Genesis 1 is a stark contrast to both the ancient world and ours, old gods and the American gods. And it's an amazing, sim amazingly simple statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's the sole God of the universe. The water and the skies are not gods, but as we read in Genesis 1, they're just created by him. He is over them, and we know who our God is. He is not hidden. He's not about to emerge. Remember, the whole goal of the God of the Bible is actually to be present with us. He wants to come and dwell with us and make himself known. We know that he's made everything. We know what this God wants, and we can come to him to find ourselves. He never changes or becomes obsolete. And so we can anchor into him for the long haul and find rest, the place that Genesis 1 ends, as we read. So if you're feeling anxious, you feel like the world is moving too fast, or you experience hurry sickness, you feel like a farmer who has over-harvested the land but has to keep farming, and an ability, inability to rest. And maybe some of us are feeling this as as the, we are so excited about these pandemic restrictions being um, opened or stopped and that we're going to see everyone again. But we also have this anxiety and fear that our lives are about to, you know, hit the speed of the treadmill going faster and faster and faster again. If that's you, then I want to remind you of the words of Goldilocks and the three dinosaurs. Maybe you're just in the wrong story. You're in a story with multiple gods that you need to appease. And I want to invite you back to the story of Genesis 1 of one God who creates everything and comes to be present with you and invites you to his rest. So that's how Genesis 1 enters into, but also challenges the Egyptian creation story. Let's, let's really quickly look at one more. There are many different stories, but this one is called the Enuma Elish. You may have heard of it. It's a Babylonian cosmology story. So in a Babylonian version of Genesis, and probably are familiar with Babylon from, from the Bible story, if you're familiar. So here on this picture, we have the two gods that start the world, Absu and Tiamat. Absu is on the right and Tiamat is on the left. And they're a couple, you know, your, your uh, wedding pictures may have not turned out pretty well, but this is the worst. I can't imagine them being worse than this. And they represent two different things. So Absu represents fresh water and Tiamat represents salt water. And then in the story, they co-mingle and um, make a lot of little gods. Again, these stories are quite X-rated, um, but they make all these little gods as they mingle together. And the problem then comes, as many of us may be able to relate to, that they have all of these god babies, and then you know the universe is getting pretty loud and crowded. And so Absu gets really frustrated. You know, he's not sleeping. He's up all night. And he approaches Tiamat, and he says, like, we need to get rid of these babies that we created. They are just causing havoc all over the place. Let's kill them. But Tiamat doesn't want to kill them. So Absu decides he's going to kill them anyways. Um, and, and, but instead, Absu is betrayed by and killed by another god named Enki. 
This is Enki. And he wants to save the lives of all the other gods. He's this wise old guy. Looks like he's drinking. And I'm not sure who that little guy is on the side. But Enki kills Absu to save the other gods. But Tiamat hears about this and she's enraged. She absolutely loses it. She's like, now my spouse, my husband, um, Absu is gone. I should have listened to him. So I'm going to go to war with all the other gods and kill them. So she makes 11 monsters to try to destroy her kids. And I couldn't find a picture of them, but she makes serpent monsters who are really interesting. They're snakes, huge snakes, but their bodies are full of poison. So even if they're destroyed, they could still kill people. And fish monsters, great rams and scorpion men, all these different monsters. And then they go, she goes to war with her children, with all the other gods. And there's this massive battle. And the other gods are losing. Tiamat and her monster army is winning. But they appoint Marduk as their king, the losing side. Now, Marduk is uh, the god of the sun. He's a very powerful god. And he's Enki's son. And Marduk starts to lead the other gods in battle. And he challenges Tiamat to a fight. And uh, it's, uh, he tricks her. He, he brings the four winds and uses them as a net. And then when Tiamat gets close to him, she opens her mouth to devour him. He shoots an arrow down her throat and splits her in half. And her head rips off and the tears from her eyes become the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. And her body becomes the ground of the earth. And this is the way in, this, uh, in the Enuma Leash that the world is made through her dead body. And it's, this is a theme that's in many, many of these uh, ancient stories. It's called Theomachy, the battle of the gods. It's a common theme that the gods battle one another to, in order to create the world. And from their dead bodies, the world emerges. So how does Genesis 1 enter, but also change the story? Well, the world is created, but it's not from a divine battle. It comes only from the word of God. God said, waters, and it was so. God said, dry land, and it was so. And that's how it goes, all six days of creation. God simply speaks creation into existence. Now, again, what does this matter to us today, or how would it matter to them back then? You know, it's not hard to make a claim that our world seems like it's at war. You know, when it's not a physical war and people are dying, you know, last, the last century was the bloodiest century in the history of our world, then it can be the threat of a physical war. Or it can be the polarization that we feel in our world around COVID. This is a world that's driven by fear and anxiety and by the battle motif. And we can constantly wonder, will the good guys win? It's a question. And by the good guys, of course, we mean ourselves, whoever we are, whatever side we're on. And this can pass over from, from our, our world in general into our personal world. That the goal of life is to get ahead, that it's a battle, that I don't have enough. And so I need to achieve. I need to overcome. I need to get ahead. Now, you might not say, I, I don't think like that in my everyday life. I don't approach life like it's a battle. Well, let me ask you this question or point this out. One of the things that happens if we live our lives like a battle is that we end up compromising on things in order to gain a competitive advantage because we think above all we need to win. And so those can be anything from big compromises in our lives, from racking up needless debt to try to stay ahead to win or cheating on our spouse or paying people off to get kids into university, if you heard about uh, that uh, university admission scandal that happened last year in the States. It can be big compromises, or it can just be small compromises in our lives. That when we're you know, daily looking through social media, that we're wishing that our lives were different, more like someone else's. Or lying in an online dating profile. 
or not being generous with our money because, you know, we're, we're in the rat race and it's really hard to stay afloat in Vancouver or not practicing spiritual rhythms because I don't have time. Our lives, these are all symptoms that our lives are set to the storylines of chaos and battle. And into the world, into this kind of world, our world, Genesis 1 speaks, that the true nature of our world is not a battle. That the core storyline of our origins is less like Avengers Infinity War and more like David Attenborough's Planet Earth or any of his, uh, his narrated shows. That it's not a, our, our story is not a chaotic cosmic battle, but just one calm, probably British voice guiding us through the cosmos. That's Genesis 1. And so for people who take our cues from Genesis 1, if that's our Genesis, then it should set our world in a different frame and our lives to a different speed. When we feel darkness creeping up and over us and our world, rather than gearing up to do battle with the chaos monster or trying to stay ahead and battle each other out, we wrap ourselves in the word of God who speaks and creates possibility out of the chaos. And at his voice, it says in Genesis 1, the waters recede. That God is the God over everything. And Psalm 19 says that the heavens will declare the glory of God. Isaiah says the mountains and the hills will break into singing and the trees of the field will clap their hands. And Romans says the creation is groaning to praise him. That he is the God over everything. And in, in Jesus, we see a repeat of the story. That God's word comes once again into a place of darkness. That God's people are chained to the gods of the wrong story. And we're in the boat amidst the chaotic waters. So the word becomes flesh and sets up his temple among us once again. And through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the word once again frees us from the chaotic waters and ransoms us from the dark forces and allows us to be brought back into the right story. Not a story of battle that we're doing, but to become free, to receive the word, to welcome it into our hearts and into our lives to recreate us and then to work with him to recreate the world. And as people who worship this God and believe this story, we have the privilege of living it out. That God, our God, is not a bloodthirsty warlord, but a royal artist who through his word wants to continue to create a masterpiece in our lives. And that's what Genesis 1 is all about. And that's what this gathering and our church family is all about too. You know, we don't live in ancient Mesopotamia, you may have never heard of the ancient sea dragon Tiamat, but we all have creation stories, stories behind us that mobilize us and put us in a certain place in the world and to face the world in a certain way. And Genesis 1 is an invitation to a different story for us to return to the true story, to trade the anxiety of many voices running in your life to the simplicity of the one God of the Bible. And to trade the story that our world is at its core, nature red in tooth and claw. And to hear the voice of God proclaiming a word of creation and peace over us. And to invite the hand of the cosmic artist to make us. That's what we come together to do. And that's the invitation of Genesis 1. Would you join me as I close in prayer? and We, we prepare ourselves to transition into a time of response. God, I thank you for this story. And um, I pray for each one of us that you invite us to live in it. Many of us know Genesis 1. We may have never heard of these other creation stories, but we live at different speeds. We live with our lives, trying to receive blessing from many different voices in our lives, many different gods. 
So I pray for each of us, would you invite us back to your story, to a singular voice, a voice of creation, a voice of blessing, a voice that says it's good. And I pray for each one of us as, as we, many of us look at the world as a battle. I think of tomorrow morning when we wake up and we hit Monday and think of the week ahead of us and all that we have to do, all that we have to perform to be someone, the bills that we have to pay, the battles that we have to fight. And I ask that in those moments, you would remind us of the story of Genesis 1. The world ultimately is not a battle because you are the God who is over everything. And the places that our world is chained to dark forces, that through Christ you have won. And so we can rest in you. So we pray for that in our lives, that we wouldn't adopt the story of a bloodthirsty warlord, but instead that we would see your hand of royal artistry in our lives, that you would recreate us that you would allow us to take this place of peace and uh, change us to become more and more like Jesus. So we pray that you would you'd bring these things into more full color and to greater picture in our lives as we sing together, as we worship you with our, our voice and with song. So we give the rest of this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.